Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This Hello. is your host, Jesse. We- oh, hey. Hey. Dennis. This is your other host, Dennis <laughs> oh. McNamara. I don't always do that. I know, Mr. Ed. Dennis, Dennis, what are we talking about today? We are Eve? talking about Eve. Adam and Eve. Ad- not Adam, just Eve. Oh. Congar. Eve Congar. A well-known Dominican who's made a cardinal by John Paul II and his big contribution to theology that people who are not priests actually have something to do at liturgy, not just in the right. And you mean answering. like me? Even you, even me. That they are members of the mystical body, and that is that liturgy is an action of Christ, and if they're members of that body, then they have a role to play as well. That sounds fantastic. So I guess you guys can listen to episode 27 of season 2 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Now that's a podcast. <laughs> no, that, that, that was the microphone. Yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. You sound like Sir Mix-a-Lot. Wow, wicka, 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 wow. My question is, this is, this is sparkling water, and it says it has essence, essence of tangerine. Ontology. So, the so essential reality. would I be being... able to drink this shortly before Mass? Or... Would this be breaking the fast? Mm. It's essence. It's essence. I think it's false advertising. You're not drinking tangerine. But what if you had water that was like had a bunch of lemons in it? Nope. And then you drink that water. Could nope. That's not water anymore. That's lemon water. That's water with lemons in it. Mm. It's like saying soup. Is that water? No, it's soup with tomatoes and vegetables. What do you think, Chris? I feel like I I feel like. (laughs) Or chopped steak. And what's better with chopped steak? I feel like I should be able to drink one. Like. Water with essence of lemon in it. It's the water. I think you have to, you can only drink water with the essence of water in it. Like, <sighs> you can't even have tea. What? That's right. Unless you're sick or something. Well, okay. So, to be clear, yeah. I would not be able to drink this. What, what's on the ingredient list? I wouldn't list? be able to slam this right What before. is on the ingredient list? The ingredient says only carbonated water. Well, then you're saying. Comma, naturally essenced. Which is such what a. What does that mean? I don't know. It doesn't mean anything, is what it means. I don't even know what this is. I don't even know how to. LaCroix? How do you say that? LaCroix? Some people say LaCroix. <coughs> en français, il est LaCroix. Speaking of en français. What? Eve Congar. Eve Congar. Oh, Eve. He was French, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Eve Congar. Who, who He's is. He's a person. What let's, is, start, let's just get that on the that? table. <laughs> what Eve is Congar that? is bigger than a bread box, <laughs> and he's a person. I don't know. That could be a church document, okay? How do you, how do you spell that? Eve, Y-V-E-S. Yeah. Just oh. like it sounds. <laughs> Whoa, that, wait, we've talked about him at one point. Uh, well, he wrote a book about the temple called The Mystery of the Temple. We've mentioned that briefly before, but we okay. haven't. Have we, we haven't talked really about temple on this show before? Never. <laughs> well, we've, yeah, we've mentioned him before, but we haven't, uh, you know. We haven't a, spent a lot of time with sure. him before. Well, let's, let's cozy up. All right. Well, he was a Dominican priest. He was born in 1904 in France, and he died at the age of 91. So he lived a long time. I mean, 95 years. Wow. And, or, yeah. No, 91 years. And so he, um, 
He lived through a lot of stuff. The pre-Vatican II what resource, a century. resourcement movement, which is the return to the sources. So, um, you know, when a lot of people are trying to figure out what is, what's the essence, what's the ontology of liturgy? <laughs> the essence. Yeah. Is it naturally it was essenced? Na- it was supernaturally essenced. Okay. Um, that was the idea. Well, the early Christians seemed to know it, you know, in the first couple of centuries, the people who were... <laughs> <laughs> Chris is opening candies. And oh my god! All right, let's just let's get it all okay. out of the way. I'm good to go. Good we'll thing start get. from the beginning. So this is a naturally. Eve <laughs> Congar. Okay, Eve Congar, larger than a bread box. A human being. Got it. A member of the order of preachers, Eve Congar, OP, mm-hmm. Ordinis Predicatorum, and he was a great theologian, born in 1904. And died in 1995. So that's 91 years. Lived. Hey, nice quick math into mm-hmm. your lifetime. You were born in the 90s, right? Uh, I was born in the 80s. Oh, uh, you were so old. Yeah. Anyway, he was one of the great uh, theologians of the 20th century, but he was a little bit in and out of favor. So he was big on. Um, I guess you'd call him in one of the resourceful figures. What's resourceful, Chris? The Mount of Resources. It's a uh, going back to the sources, right? So saucement is like uh, the, the sources they talk about are usually what they call the patristic sources. So the first, how many centuries are patristic? All right, what, 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 seven or eight. Can we talk about what patristics mean? That, well, fathers, patre, okay. paters in there. So the early church fathers, I don't know what century patristic ends. Probably the sixth think, or seventh century, maybe. Yeah, or, seventh, maybe eighth. And oh. so the idea was that they were closer to Jesus. They were closer to the original methods of celebration. And so the source, the source, the original source. Okay. So some people thought that in the middle ages for various reasons or in the earlier and late middle ages or after Trent, the church went into these reactionary modes against different things. And so the ideas of liturgy became reactionary. So for instance, after Trent, the uh, Protestants were denying the value of the intercession of saints. So what did the Catholic Church do? They went berserk with saints. Statues of saints floating, images of saints interceding, uh, ecstasy of saint whatever, and all these paintings, saints, 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 which is a reaction to the, the issue of before. Or the, um, the, the benediction of the Blessed Sacrament got really surrounded with all kinds of things like processions and lots of rich, uh, what they call theatrical, worship or benediction because they thought they were answering the questions of the Reformation about the, the real presence. But what they couldn't do because they were doing all that was answering these Which real... Which is not a bad thing. It's not wrong, yeah. right? It's just... No, a, some, although some people did think it was a very bad thing. We just, it was, these were dead ends. We needed to... Right. Better if they never happened in the first place. So they chose a particular thing to emphasize to answer a particular need. But when you do that, then you kind of forget the big picture. And the big picture they thought was given by these early uh, theologians in their writings, talking about the nature of the liturgy, what it was, particularly as a corporate activity, corporate activity. So mm-hmm. if you were of a certain school of, of people really up into the 20th century, you would might have been taught, well, religion uh, is, the, you know, liturgy is the external enacting of the ceremonies of the rites of the church that are done because you owe a duty of religion to God because he made you and so you owe this to him. And the right celebration would produce uh, fruits in the Eucharist, which you receive your kind of spiritual vitamin pill, and that was it. And so you would wait around and do kind of nothing until the priest did what he did. Yeah. Well, and and to it. a certain degree, that's true, but there's a lot, lot more beneath the surface. Right. So what they were thinking is we have They to should find... have listened to the liturgy guys. <laughs> well, part of the reason the liturgy guys the liturgy is the guys liturgy guys. are always around when you don't want them and never around when you do. Well, that's what they tell us. Mm. But we are who we are because of people like... Yves Kankar and others. He got in some trouble, though, because he was 
kind of critical of um, some of the papal ceremonies, and he was big in ecumenism with, you know, talking with other Christians before that was trendy. And um, he also was talking about a more collegiate um, papacy. So there's something called ultramontanism, which is basically like the Pope is this oracle. Everything he says is exactly right. You can never argue. So a lot of traditional Catholics were ultramontanist under Pope Benedict XVI. That sounds like an error to me. Well, in a way it is. Um, But, you know, suddenly they're not ultramontanist when Pope Francis came along and started saying things they didn't like. (laughs) So the idea is, what is the real role of the chair of Peter? What is the real role of the Holy See? What What is the relationship between the head and the members of the college of cardinals and the Pope or the, the College of Bishops more, more properly. And so when those ideas were kind of new, he got shut down. He got the big smackdown in the mm-hmm. 50s. And got smackdown. His writings uh, from 1947 to 56 were pretty much, uh, what do you say, censored. And um, Rome said, nope, you cannot do translations, you can't publish. And then uh, suddenly, in the 1960, John the 23rd comes along and says, "Hey, Eve Congar, I want you on the Preparatory Theological Commission for the Second Vatican Ooh, Council." Awkward. <laughs> How about that? Now that was kind of a smackdown, if you want to say. Yeah. So you know there are some there are some turning points in certain things. So anyway, he had this great reputation for being a scholar. Sometimes you know people don't always agree, but one of his big, big, big commitments or uh, contributions was this notion of who worships at the liturgy. So ask the average person, who is celebrating Mass these days? Father. What would you get? The priest priest. and possibly the people. Right, but probably people say the priest does it. He has the power to transubstantiate, and that's what really counts. And we kind of sing songs and stuff, too. We support him. We're the cheerleaders. But that basically, he's the guy with the power that we don't have, and so this, you know, ordination, priestly ordination... um, is really, really important. And, you know, since the council, we've been trying to say, oh, you know, people in the pews, you have a role too. You worship too. You worship as well. But people don't really get that. Either they don't do it at all, or they try to flatten out the difference between the priestly ordination and the, um, you know, priesthood of the baptized. And they say, we are church, and we can do whatever we want. And so they downplay the ordination. So, um, you know, Congar wrote this article that was recent, fairly recently represented in a book called At the Heart of Christian Worship, and it's called The Ecclesia, or Christian Community as, the whole, as a Whole Celebrates the Liturgy. The Church Celebrates the Liturgy. And a lot of it is not new now to people in the field of theology, but it might be new to the average person. Because if you say, what is the church? What, what, what do you think the church is? Skin for liturgical action. <laughs> the church building. The church. We are, we are the church. We are church, right? Yeah, well, yeah right. Well, how come? I mean, most people would say the church is, well, it's this institution that's headed by the Pope, and then there's bishops, and then it extends out logically. He turns that on his head, and he says, no. I mean, that is one aspect of the church, but the church is Christ's body on earth, still acting as Christ. And so when the church worships, the church is Christ's Christ-worshipping, and it's not merely the proper um, execution of the ceremonies, but it's actually um, an, this extension of Christ. Sorry. <laughs> <But it's... laughs> I didn't know that we had Patrick Coffin on this show. Oh, <laughs> nailed it. Two points. Bell me. Is that a nail in the coffin? Yeah, okay. Yeah, there you go. Um, but so it's, it's, if the church is acting, then you have to say, well, who's making up the membership of the church? It's not just the priest who's saying mass, 
But it's the people in the pews who have a role, and the angels and saints, the stars, the planets, this whole cosmological increase of the notion of who the mystical body is. So that's one okay. of the big, big things. Okay, you're giving me the... Well, so uh, Pius XII in 1943 wrote uh, Mystici Corporis Christi. Yeah, right. right. So, I don't know. He's just saying that or what you're describing here is the same thing that Pius XII wrote, right? Well, in a way, yeah. He, he's high on Pius XII, even though Pius XII is the one who shut him down. Yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah. he says immediately day, uh, he says a lot of these really good things. So... What he says is the church is the subject of the liturgical acts. Mm, the church is the subject of the liturgical acts. The ecclesia, the organically structured body that is the church, is the subject of the liturgical act. Now, if you weren't careful about that, would that make somebody nervous? We are well, the subject oh yeah, yeah, of the, of the yeah, acts. Yeah, because that goes back into that hierarchical thinking of like a king and the king's subjects. But I... Mm. I don't. I could be wrong here, but I think that what is being said there is that we are subjects, and that we are the target for the liturgical act, so that we can then be transformed through said liturgical act. Right. In a way, it's, most people don't know the difference between subject and object right now. But subject, the subject. Yeah, let's just in this let's sense. Go ahead and explain the, let's, that. Let's, let's like, just do so objectively. Yeah, I mean, Jesse and I do. No, <laughs> the, uh, we know, like the, but. The, yeah, the, just for those who don't. For those who don't. In this case, the subjects are like the doers of something. So um, if the object is the receiver and the subject is kind of the doer in this, in this case. So the, uh, the church is the doer of the worship, right? The hierarchically arranged membership of the church with the Christ as their head. They are the doers of the liturgy. Now, what the mistake is if people say, okay, well, then, therefore, we're the object of the liturgy. So you read some stuff in the 70s where they say there's nothing, no symbol more important than the, peop the celebration and the people celebrating. Well, yeah. The, the most primary liturgical symbol is the assembly. It's the assembly doing their thing. Well, in a way, if you get that and you say, okay, well, the subject, the people doing the prayer is the church. The church is Christ's body. We're members of Christ's body. But the object, the direction of that worship is not into the self to feel certain feelings. It's to go to the Father. Right. And so what happens when you have like high theology and then people don't really get the high theology and they say, we're the most important things. So we have to see each other. This is how the documents, some you know articles and stuff in the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s. And even today, some liturgical publishers still have this emphasis on things that the, the primary thing is the way the people feel with each other. They see each other. There's a climate of hospitality. And there's sort of this lack of outward um, stuff that goes on sometimes. So he, he really wants to bring this. Pope uh, Benedict was out. speaking about the, the, the circle enclosed upon itself, the kind of the, the, the community worshiping itself, enclosed in upon itself. This uh, article that you're, that you're reading from, what year is that? Do you know? Uh, actually, I don't know right now, but I'll, okay. it was after the council, though. So okay. it was pretty soon after the council. Because that one line about a, a hierarch hierarchically structured priestly community. I mean, that, that's right out of Lumen Gentium 10 or 11 right. or something. Right. Like and that. he speaks about that a lot, that Sacrosanctum Echilium and Lumen Gentium both talk about the nature of the church. And if the nature of the church before was everything subsists in the priest and he does all the, the liturgical worship and then the people just kind of wait around and have the benefits of his powers, you know, who has the power to transubstantiate? That's a reasonable question. But then the other reasonable question is, what does the body do? If he signifies the head, then does the body have a role or does the body just wait around? And so he goes through a long series of history, pulls things from history from all the way from the New Testament through patristic sources, and he talks about the church is the body, uh, that, that you know, Christians that become the body of Christ is mentioned in Scripture. 
And he says that the physical body of the Lord has become uh, sacramentalized in the the church on earth. So if you think of the church not as an authoritative structure, legal structure of getting things done, although it is that, but think of it as body of Christ acting on earth. That's Christ's actual body sacramentalized um, in us and joined together by the love of the Holy Spirit. Then that body acts. It's the same body as Christ's body in heaven that's acting. And so the people are the members and the priest is the head. And so these things are all tied in uh, together. Sound crazy so far? So are you saying that when we talk about the people at Mass being that, you know, total picture of what's going on, it, we're not taking it far enough. We need to take it even further and say not, is it, not only is it just us as the church praying, but it's us as the body of Christ. Right. If you say the church isn't just a, an institutional structure of parishes and dioceses and offices, but the church is Christ, acting, continuing to act, and we're members of that body, then we're acting as Christ. And then the hierarchical structure of the parish offices and the parish secretary and the janitor and the sacristan, they're all necessary to support the action, but they are not constitutively what the church is. The church is Christ, and therefore the lay people have a role they, that they offer the sacrifice of Christ with the priest as their baptismal authority as allows a, it. As a baptismal priest. But that doesn't mean they have to cut the head off the body, just say, oh, finally the body has some dignity. The head and the body have to work together. And he quotes Thomas Aquinas here who says, the priest does some, sometimes mentions that, he mentions that the priest sometimes acts in persona totius ecclesiae, that some of his prayers are in the name of the whole church. And sometimes he's in persona Christi in particular where he's acting uh, as Christ. And so there's this kind of individual notion of what a priest does, but then there's the whole affirmation that the whole mystical body um, has a role. And so there's some really important stuff there, head and member. The point of all this isn't just to, to parse theological words. It's to really rescue, in his time, to rescue people from in the pews from thinking they had nothing to do, and say the rosary instead. But I think in our time, we have two problems. You have people who say, oh, the 70s were a bunch of hippies making up stuff and we are church and therefore nothing else matters. And so they lose their connection to, the, to Christ. And then so they run off to the other side and say, oh, priests are everything, the Pope's everything. Let me just sit here and be quiet while the priest does all the work for me. The real middle position here is the church is Christ as a body. He's the, Christ is the spouse, but uh, also the body. And we're part of that body. So what, the, what Christ does as the church, the, us, we do as well, and lay people do that. And he mentions that, this is mentioned in Mediator Day, uh, in particular, he calls it the mystico-christological point of view. Ooh. So it's mystical body of That's Christ. That's intense. Mystico-christological. Um, he says it's not a question of a simple link between the faithful and the hierarchical priests, but there's a third term, Christ who embraces the other two and connects them organically. The whole body is priestly. So everybody, even Agnes, even even Agnes, Agnes oh my goodness, she worships going to be so happy as she can, right? And lay people offer themselves, and you can offer your children, and as members of the body, you offer that sacrifice with the priest on the way that you offer, which is what you can offer yourself and those who are entrusted uh, to you. And so he says, there's no essential difference between the universal church and any particular genuine local assembly. You know, you hear about that sometimes, we are church or in your local church. Sometimes that kind of language just makes me nervous because it's associated with, sometimes with people doing things I don't quite get. But 
If the local church is doing the same thing as the universal church, it's one body, even though it's across space, even though it's across time. The angels and saints are in heaven. They're part of that one body. They're doing that one worship uh, of Christ as Christ. And so this mystical reality, um, he says, it's astonishing that the subject of the Eucharistic offering, so the ones doing the Eucharistic offering, include the saints of heaven and the angels. This is way different from thinking, I'm in my local parish and the priest does everything and I wait around for my spiritual vitamin pill. Mm -hmm. So we're even thinking, you know, I'm actively participating in my local parish with the priest, but it's us here in the parish. That's uh, myopic too. Yeah. Right. And the statue of a saint is for private devotion and that we don't do anything. But a mural of the saints will say, Oh, these are the mystical. These are the members of the mystical body that are uh, happening here at all. So as well, I mean, so this is kind of what we're, uh, what we're talking about to be church. Sometimes these, you get these phrases like you have to be more church or your local church or be church. Be church means what? C H blank blank C H. What's missing? You are. are. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, I was up for one of those cheesy so like church signs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, this reminds me of Dennis's. Um, we learned a lot of great things from uh, Dr. Fagerberg when he was here as a teacher. And this is one of the things he suggested is that, um, when you look back at the history of Christianity, the first thousand years were primarily questions about God. Who is Jesus? Is he God? Is he man? Is he both? Is he neither? Is he come morphed thing of the two? Is the Holy Spirit God? Where does he come from? And so those really occupying the, the articulating those truths was what the church was up to for the first Christian millennia. And the second Christian millennia was more about uh, sacraments, is what he had suggested. Are there five sacraments, 10 sacraments, seven sacraments, major sacraments, minor sacraments, sacramental sacraments? Where do they come from? How are they instituted? How are they worked? And in the third Christian millennia, more or less, beginning with the first Vatican Council in 1869, were questions of ecclesiology. So at the first Vatican Council, we have papal infallibility. There was a constitution on the church. At the second Vatican Council, we had two constitutions on the church. And that the questions really, uh, we had uh, media today in that, in that time frame too. You know, so the questions of today, he suggested, and it seems pretty right as far as I can tell, are really ecclesiological ones. And this is what your article from Yves Congar is uh, suggesting. It's where is this mystical body? Right. We're still trying to... I don't know, wrap our minds around, I guess, or see our place in it. And in a certain sense, we're kind of used to this talk now. You know, I say, oh, the mystical body is composed of the angels and saints, so we should have them on the wall. I say that all the time. But nobody said that in 1940. I mean, they didn't really, well, maybe in 1940, but nobody said that in 1840 for sure. Because people like Eve Congar came around and said, all right, all that Thomistic stuff is great. What are all the terms? What do they mean? What are the powers? How many sacraments are there? But what you really have to understand is who's doing it and what does that mean for you? Remember, they're always afraid that the world is going down the tubes because of war, because of atom bombs, because of the depression, because of mustard gas and uh, atheism and communism and all this stuff. What's wrong with the world? Why aren't we getting the grace? Why aren't people being transformed by the grace of the church? Why are they walking away from the church? Why could France have the French Revolution and not care? And so they're always saying, these people in the pews are members of that body and they have to know it because they can't offer themselves themselves as a victim unless they know that they're part of the victimhood of Christ. And if they think they're just bystanders or spectators watching the priest do everything, then chances are they're not going to get transformed as they should and they're not going to transform the world. That's always kind of the context of this. In fact, Congar was a chaplain, I think, in World War uh, I. 
And so he saw the horrors of, of war himself and would probably be really interested in these questions. Now, when you talk like this and you say, well, in the Middle Ages, they were really interested in terminology and power, like, you know, the, what are the powers of the priests? What are the powers of the sacraments? People say, oh, you want to downplay that? No, 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 no. What we just want to say is there's more than just the internal workings of the question of transubstantiation. Like, why would God have transubstantiation at all? And who does that? And so on. So there are lots of good uh, questions that he answers in that. And he said the, the sacraments became known as things. So you have seven sacraments and the Eucharist became a thing. It was just like a spiritual vitamin pill as opposed to part of this whole process of being offered. And he said they were separated from the living person of Christ. Well, if I, if I go and get the Eucharist, then I'm charged up. I've done my duty. Well, how about the idea that the Eucharist is an act, not a thing? So the thanksgiving that you offer to God is Christ's own thanksgiving. It's your own sacrifice of yourself. It's your own asking for glorification. So this is the Eucharist as an act rather than a thing is something that they're really big on at this point. And he's very interested in that church, uh, in that idea too. And he said the early church knew this. They knew that the Eucharist was an act of the mystical body and that the true sacrament of Christ was the church and Christ was the sacrament of the Father. And so we're all talking about access to the Father as opposed to moral theology alone or go to communion or else or don't go to communion because you're not worthy. All those questions that were occupying everybody's time were kind of missing the, um, the larger uh, issue there. And people are still missing it a lot. Yeah, we had to go back to our roots then. You know, we'd say like... Back to the sources. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're Back to the source. Back to the future. Oh. 1984, (laughs) November 5th. (laughs) And, you know, he mentions the, uh, some text from the Mass uh, where the priest had always said this. He said the liturgical books kind of kept the history alive, even if people weren't doing it anymore. So... If everybody forgot the mystical body theology and just watched the priest do this, but then when you looked at the text, it said, my sacrifice and yours, right? The priest would say Mm -hmm. this, even when that theology was gone. So when they retranslated, or they translated the new missal, they brought my sacrifice and yours back. Remember, it used to say, our our sacrifice, because they're really trying to bring out again, the people have a role to play in the the headship. Or when they say... um, uh, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands. That's the, the body supporting the action of the head. And these are all things that he's rediscovered, that the people have a role to play. They don't just wait around for the priest to, uh, to do everything. And so this is not that hard, right? I mean, he, he praises Mr. G. Corporis, Pius the Twelfth document, 1947, and where it says all this. And then he says that Vatican 42. II... Oh, sorry, Mr. Corpore is 43, but he praises me the other day, which is 47. And then he says Vatican II took that um, even uh, further by saying that Christ um, associates the church with himself and that the work that he's doing at the right hand of God is the work of the church because it's him. And so this whole notion, we are church, or you have a right as a lay person to participate, the dignity of the laity is not really a Marxist sense of, I get to do what I want, or Father won't let me do whatever. It's about understanding the nature of the church, about the nature of Christ, and um, Sacrosanctum Concilium calls it unitati sacramentum. What is that, Chris? Sacrament of unity? Sacrament of unity, right. And who is the source of that unity? It's the Holy Spirit. So if the Father and the Son are bound together by the love of the Holy Spirit, then who's binding the church who's binding together. the binder <laughs> well who's binding the other things they need bound, binding it's the holy spirit so the holy spirit acts in and through the church binds us to christ and then christ binds us to the head and so all this richness and layers of meaning that other people had um, kind of forgotten 
he brought back into um, our own time. And then finally, somebody made him a cardinal. Do you know who, Chris? John Paul II? John Paul II made him a cardinal. He was already dying, and it was 22 days before he died, he was named a cardinal. Hmm. And so he went from being forbidden to being uh, a cardinal of the church. And so, you know, now people are looking back, and I, what I think he was doing in this article is after the council, I don't know that he saw things going off the deep end, but if you were to see things go off the deep end, he would pull you right back, Okay. Being the people of God doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. It means you're bound together, united, glorified, and you act as Christ. And so the, the people who are the members have something to do that's important and real. They offer sacrifice, and then they're united together by the Holy Spirit. And um, he says, this is a mystery that goes beyond any question of juridical validity. Ooh, what is that? why would he say that, Chris? Because of uh, an overemphasis on the institutional model of uh, the church. Yeah, right? as yeah. a Agreed. juridical uh, uh, structure, legalistic. Right. So we, in the West, we like our little minimum. How many? What must the priest say at a minimum to confect the Eucharist? Isn't that a weird question? It's like, what minimum must I do to love my wife? How many hours do I have to pray to get into heaven? Well, right. Instead, say. How much do I get to do to become, to live fully as a part of a family or to, you know, if I, if I only hug my daughter five minutes a day, then she won't become a psychopath. Well, that's not the way to do it, you know? How much do I get to love? Dr. Spendley, what is that amount? <laughs> so he says, you know, this view of, the, of Christian worship, it goes beyond the question of validity. Is it, you know, transubstantiated or not, which is a reasonable question, but... What's the objective of the liturgical action, he says? It's the glorification of God, the sanctification of the faithful. The sanctification happens in part by people acting as Christ. They're apprenticing in this, in this uh, in a way to be Christ. And it happens in the church, which is composed of headed members. So the people have something to do. It's, it's really interesting hearing all of this because you know, my, my scope and perspective is to be sitting here and learning all this stuff from, from you guys and from Father Martis and just the Liturgical Institute in general. And these guys uh, who are involved with the liturgical movement and, and even Eve uh, Kungar uh, really did a lot of the heavy lifting before Vatican II. And what we're doing at the Liturgical Institute is going back to these guys, <laughs> Eve Gungar and uh, Virgil Michael, and looking and saying, like, no, let's go back to what happened right before Vatican II, because they were closest to what was happening in terms of the direction of the church. And so I just think it's kind of ironic. You know, they were trying to go back to the beginning and say, what is, what is the liturgy? What is the mass? And, and let's go to the source of what was happening then, which is what we're doing at the Liturgical Institute, trying to figure out right before Vatican II, uh, what preceded this? What was the mentality? Who yeah. are the people leading it? Right. And, and then... That's how we approach the liturgy. Yeah, there's two ways to look at this. You know, if the, if the riches are presented to you and you just wander off and don't care, well, then someone has to say, hey, come, come over here and listen. Or if you take the wrong road on a, at a fork in the road, you have to go backward a bit to get on the right, mm -hmm. the right fork. So I'm not saying we're going backward in this sense, but going to the fullness of truth and then trying to bring it uh, forward. So now the big question, does this, any of this talk make you nervous at all? that the people are part of the priesthood and it's not just the priests who hang around at the altar and people have a role. Yes. Does that make no. you nervous? I can see you shaking. Well, in, in a sense, because then we talked a little bit about this at lunch today as in like, why do you need 
the priest? What is the priest's role? Right. He gives an answer to that because he's very balanced. And he says, this theology situates the hierarchical priesthood within the church and not above it, right? So if the priests are doing all this stuff and the church just sort of watch it, I mean, the people just start to watch it. That's like the head is not connected to the body. What he's saying, like if you think of yourself, your head is part of your body. It's the government. It is. It's the part of your... <laughs> yeah. See, but it's, e- it's even atop your body though. Right. That's it's, how I would say it's it. still at the head, but it's part of the body, mm-hmm. right? It's the organizing principle and it has lots of things that the other parts of the body don't have. But if you say, well, the head is some other thing and the body's not really related to it, and so every now and then your head just you know, shoots some stuff down there to uh, keep it going. This is getting real weird. That's not a, uh, that's not a holistic view of the mystical body. So, yeah. um, the body can't live without the head, but the head can't live either without the body. Right? So both the, the priest in persona Christi Capitis is necessary and the members of the body are necessary for the whole thing to, to operate. Right. So he says the, the priesthood, he's not trying to diminish the priesthood, although people might be nervous that that's what he's saying. But if you see that the head is part of the body and not some other thing that the body's unrelated to, then it's within the church and then the people um, and the priest together are not indistinguishable, but... Uh, or they're distinguishable. They're distinguishable, but they're not they're separate. Not, right, they're not right. indistinct from each other. Yeah. But they, uh, that's what the, the order of the church is. Christ has a head, he's the head, he has members. What does the church have? Head and members. Where are the priests? They're the head. What do the members do? The same thing that the body of Christ does, but in their own way. And so he says the order of priesthood is necessary because it's part of the body. It's this organizing, governing principle within it. But it has a mission within the body and not a mission separate from the body. And it's a mission of service that exercises the ministry you know, to the body uh, and for the body and with the body. So what do we make of all this? It's, it's real good. <laughs> it, it, it shouldn't change a thing <laughs> about the way we understand things, right? Priests are necessary. People are necessary. But priests are not the only thing. People offer their worship according to their baptismal dignity. And altogether, the church is Christ, has an ordered hierarchical structure, and it's doing on earth what's being done in heaven or offering perfect praise and receiving grace from the Father to glorify God and to sanctify us until the end when we don't need sanctification anymore. Well, despite the encyclicals of Pius XII and then the Council and then you know what I hear at the Institute and like podcasts like this, I still think the relation in, in discussions and understanding the relationship between the liturgy and the church still uh, is pretty weak pretty thin. Yeah, out in the I world, think. you mean? Yeah. Well, if you go so. back to Sacrosanum Concilium, and it says it's the exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ, who exercises the priestly office of Jesus Christ? Head and members. Head and members, yeah. right? If you're going to go to Mass, you don't, you just, this is gonna, you're going to think this is creepy, but your head doesn't just float in in a jar, right? You stand, you walk, yep, real you creepy. kneel. <laughs> the body actually supports the action. This is not Futurama, where you just have <laughs> exactly. people's heads hanging out. Exactly. So the head and the members, even in your own self, do the work of worship. You make churches, you carry incense, you do whatever you do with your hands and your feet and your knees, guarded and governed by the head. But without the body, the head is less. And so, um, what did you say, Chris, that made me say this? (laughs) What did you just say? Uh, Well, I was talking about the relationship of the mystical body to the liturgy and how the... Oh, right. They're they're rarely talked, in in what I experienced, they're rarely associated as as strongly as, say, Pisa Twelfth or Congar or the Council. Because the liturgy is the action of Christ. He's exercising the priestly office. What body on earth does that? Christ's mystical body. Who does that include? Head Every, and members, ev- right? Everybody. Everybody? Everybody. everybody. Not everybody's a head. Some people are knees, right? But you need the knees too. So Chris is the bee's knees. 
All right. Uh, time to answer a liturgy question, huh? Okay. Oh, we stopped. <laughs> Usually that like leads into something really cool, and then that didn't that time. Answer a question. Let's answer <laughs> a question. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this next question comes from Luke. Yes. Luke says, Liturgy and personal prayer definitely seem to both be necessary in the spiritual life of a Catholic. But since we are finite and there are only so many hours in the day participating in the Mass, morning prayer, and evening prayer, and still having time for our personal prayer every single day seems, in many people's minds, like too much to manage. What is the best way to navigate the relationship between liturgy and personal prayer in one's daily life while still upholding the dignity of both? That is a good question. question. Yeah. Unfortunately, our church is very flexible on things like this. Yes, it is. All right. So that's your answer, Luke. Uh, Oh, sorry. Well, the thing about private prayer, devotional prayers, it can take very many forms. Uh, You know, I don't know what, they're probably go-to prayers that your family prays, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. They're same uh, with ours. There's probably prayers that uh, your wife prays and that you pray differently, pray at different times. Um, And even, you know, you hear about the heroic moment and, you know, that alarm goes off and you oh, put your feet on the I've floor. I've never been able never to never heard it. of that, huh? No, I've, I've heard of it. I've, <laughs> I've never been it. able to do it. Yeah, but you put your feet on the floor, you bend down, you kiss the floor and you say, serve him. Okay, I mm-hmm. will serve. All right, so there's your, your day is off, off and running, hopefully. This, mm-hmm. this is what St. Jose Maria Escriva would say. You know, it feels, you know, life's hard enough to find yourself beaten at the first moment of the day. Wow. You I've can't never heard of this. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but it takes five seconds, and so you're you're off with a little uh, uh, devotional, prayerful gem to get your day going. I guess the point of all of this is that um, it's not about the necessarily the multiplication or you know the there's it's finding the little times that that maybe don't take a lot of time. Um, I read this once upon a time that you know the, the housefly is associated with uh, you know with the devil or something like so. Every time you see a housefly, you say the Saint Michael prayer. Whenever you hear a chime go off, every time a bell rings, angel gets his wings. No, every time you hear a, a bell or a chime, let that be your reminder to... A bell? Okay, to uh, uh, just to turn your heart to God and say the Jesus prayer. Okay, um, I have a little, a little devotion yeah. that I, whenever I hear somebody say, Jesus Christ, like in a movie or something, I just in my mind finish it. Truly, blessed, truly, truly present in the blessed sacrament, have mercy on us. That's my little thing Great. that I do. Yeah, so a, a person's private prayers and devotions can be made up uh, throughout the day of these little things that 
that uh, they don't have to, you don't have to set aside, say, 15 or 20 minutes to do something like that. But if you start to, to look for these types of things, you'll find that by the time you get to the end of the day and you make your examination of conscience and you thank God for the blessings of the day, then, wow, I, I spent the day in, in praise of God. And but that being said, liturgical prayer is fundamentally, objectively superior to mm-hmm. devotional mm-hmm. prayer, right? So if you can swing Mass or the Liturgy of the Hours, that mm-hmm. would be the best. And then you work your way down to what's actually feasible, feasible and, and practical in, in your life. Sounds good to me. All right. I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.